Hey everyone, and welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with author R.J. Barker. We talked about writing on steroids, how glorious hair can get you free drinks, and what it's like to build a fantasy world from the ground up. After finishing his epic fantasy trilogy about a crippled assassin who solves mysteries, the first book in R.J. Barker's new trilogy launched just last month. The Bone Ships follows a crew of condemned women and men as they chase a sea monster with their ship built from the bones of a dead dragon. It's a story full of found family, grand sea battles, and a deconstruction of the things we take for granted in society. RJ was a ton of fun to talk to. Let's see what he had to say. Welcome, RJ. It's a privilege to have you at the Fantasy Inn. Hello, Travis. I'm, I'm very glad to be here. And, and, and to meet you and I'm waving at you even though you can't actually see that I am <laughs> uh, well hello to you too uh, so I guess the first question I want to ask uh, can you talk a little bit about what inspired the bone chips how did the story originate just a quick note there are a few issues with RJ's audio at first don't worry this doesn't last long everything should be fine in a few minutes I, I'm never entirely sure where things come from with ideas I, I, I always think people say oh where, where did the idea come from? It's, it's a bad question, and I think that's wrong. I think it's a really good question. It's just the reason you'll hear us complain about it is it's also a really hard question because it's a really it's a really big question because everything influences you that's that's going going on around you. Um, the the first conscious thought I had about it was I wanted to write ships because you know, not that many fantasy writers doing it, and that attracts me first of all. When you see that not a lot of people are doing that, I think this is um, Temeraire by Naomi Novak and um, Rob Hayes, um, a self-published author. He's written some, some ship-based things. Um, uh, oh, God, mine's gone. But anyway, there, there was that in the back of my head. I like ships and I love the sea. And I wanted to write about the sea because I think that there's a rhythm and a, and a feel to see that you, you, can, you can grab onto with text. Um, but the first conscious idea in it was how would how would you build these massive sailing ships if you lived in a world without wood? Uh, and that, that's kind of the genesis of it. That, that's a, an idea that was... Because you have an idea in that, like a lot of writers, they, they write down all their ideas in a book, um, which I never do, because I, I think that's giving myself permission to forget them. And I know I'll never look in that book again, because I, I lose everything, and I'm really slack. Um, so... so I, I let ideas stay in the back of my head. I think if I forget them, they probably weren't very good. Uh, if it stayed there, it's probably worth pursuing. Um, I've had this idea about how, how would you build ships in a world without wood? And, and that, that sort of leave, send you off in two, two directions. Um, th- this is so, so boring how it, it sounds really logical when I explain it. And there's, there's none of this. It's all hindsight. <laughs> the, the, the first is why isn't there wood? which is how we get kind of the, the ecology of, of the Hundred Isles and, and the Skadapago, which are these jungles that grow up very fast and then die back. Um, so so the, the, they're, they're more like big ferns or succulents. So it's, it's, you, ha- you can't, they don't have trunks, they don't have wood that's usable in the same way. Uh, and then the second one was, was what could we use instead, which is really, oh, yeah, we, we need something. Um, and I did think about stone for a bit, and then decided no one would go for that. Although technically possible, you can build ships out of steel. It's all about how much weight is to, you're interested in the maths of it. Um, but I'm not, so I, I didn't want to do anything that was too hard. Um, and then, then I was thinking about sort of Neolithic cultures, and they often used 
horn and bone as tools. And if you go back to the 17th century, sailors did scrimshaw, which is carving onto bone, so patterns and pictures, and that was very popular. So bones seem nautically linked and a possible idea, but but from the idea of using bone, then you, you, you get the idea. It has to be massive. The bones have to be huge, huge bones. Um, so I need something huge. And I kind of thought about whales, first of all. And then I thought, no, I, I want an entirely new world. I don't want stuff we recognize in it. Um, to be drawn to dragons, uh, quite naturally, in a fantasy setting. And I know my editor likes dragons, so I thought, she'll, she'll like that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and the, are they dragons, really? They're kind of possibly nearer to kaiju really i think um so i had this this that sort of set up uh, and i had the the idea of a, a matriarchy had interested me in writing for quite a long time i think i think that would be an interesting thing to do so i sort of put all that together into one thing and then when i'd age of assassins had come out and blood of assassins was just about to come out and my agent was saying i think we should talk a little bit about what you want to do next and I gave him a couple of pages of, of ideas and stuff that I was happy to do um, and said, pick one, because I'm a complete tart when it comes to writing. I'll write anything. I don't care. I love the act of writing. It's not not really what about what I'm writing. It's about the act of doing it. Once I'm doing it, I'm in it. I, I'm doing it. Um, and he chose this one. He said, I think that one sounds brilliant. And went to Jenny, my editor, and she really liked it. The only thing she said was um, I couldn't have canon. Because originally there was canon in it, cause, cause it uh, and, and I kind of sulked about that for a bit. Uh, but then I realized she was absolutely right. It, it made it too close to our world. Well, there's also something that's just really cool about essentially giant crossbows. Yeah, yeah. It felt, once I'd come up with that idea, I thought, yeah, yeah, Jenny was right. Uh, and I have learned that really about my editor. Generally, she is right. Um, and so I just take her advice. But there is, uh, and there's a whole scene, scene in the bone ships, which is just about how they make the crossbows work. And I love that scene. And I imagine that maybe some people will be a bit bored, but it, it's just really joyous to me. They're just there being taught how to do it properly. And it's a proper naval book scene. You can't write a book about about navies without having a scene where they're taught how to work the guns or the, the bows in in this case. And uh, they, they kind of feel... They feel powerful when you're writing about them in the book. I like them. They're good. Yeah. And uh, so you've talked about kind of how you're building this new world with bone ships. Uh, and so taking a step back briefly, I know in the Wounded Kingdom books, uh, they're more grounded in medieval England. It's a setting that most readers are probably more familiar with. Um, but you've, you've also worked some extra things in there behind the scenes. Like, I believe you've mentioned there's some Arthurian lore in the Wounded Kingdom, uh, but I don't think you've ever actually shared what that lore was. Any chance you could share now? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty subtle, the Arthurian stuff that's, that's going on it, but it, it, it is there. Um, it's really difficult to do it without massive spoilers for people that haven't, haven't okay, read well, it. Okay, well, we can skip past that if that's uh, too I'm spoilery. Just, I'm just having to think if there's anything. There, there are certain parts of, of of the Arthurian myth, like like a sword that makes someone a king. That's in there, and and um, the Fisher King. That's in there. I'm not going to say much about that because people who know what the Fisher King is will recognise it when they find it, and, and people who don't um, can Google it. 
uh, and and, <laughs> and that, that'll help them find it. Um, so that's in there, and there's a kind of hidden Arthurian Easter egg that no one's found yet. But I imagine someone's gonna at some point. Some people know it because I've told them, and they're just like, "Oh, how did I not see that?" But but yeah, there's a lot of and, and kind of you you could kind of see the the, the king figure and Girton as Arthur and Merlin. If you if you want to, I mean, obviously they Merlin in in the, the myths is much older, and, and that's not the case in these books. But that that was part of my thinking. But there there is a a lot of it, and I, and when I write books, I have a friend called Matt. Hello, Matt. You'll probably listen to this. Um, <laughs> and and I, I meet with him, and I talk at him like I'm talking to readers now, and he's very good, and he lets me bounce stuff off him. But he, he's done a lot of. Um, Arthurian scholarship it's his thing so a lot of things he was coming back he was saying oh you could do this so there's a lot of parallels that have that have come from him and they're just kind of hidden within it that people can find it is not a retelling of the Arthur story but but there are definite nods to it within the Wounded Kingdom because I, I love looking at the story I think that was my first sort of fantastical story that I, I loved was when I was young, I found the Kiaster and thought, I really like this. And it, it works in many different ways. Yeah. And so is there any sort of similar mythology or Easter eggs that you've worked into the bone chips? I don't think there is. There was more a conscious, conscious idea of, of stepping away from, from our world. There is, a, um, there's a tripartite goddess, which I was thinking about the, the, the Morrigan, which is a Celtic uh, goddess, um, possibly mm, Celtic mythology is all a bit hazy, but um, the the maiden mother and hag is is a, a sort of folklore figure, um, which interests me. That's in there, um, and that's their their central goddesses. And I'm a sense with it being a matriarchy that they would have these female goddesses, and 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 it is intrinsic to the plot and the entire story in the way it's told and where. It go but i think i think that's it really i mean that yeah yeah i think i, I as, as consciously as i ever am i think i tried to keep away from stuff that i was i was familiar with but no doubt as soon as we stop talking i will think oh yeah but i did that that thing <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> but but yeah and so yes no not not in this one but there was it in the other one this was a lot more a lot more its own little thing, its own little mythology and, and, and world. Right. And I know I definitely recognized uh, the maid mother and hag as something that I'd seen before, uh, kind of spun in its new twist. Uh, and that always excites me because I don't normally pick up on things like that in books. So that was something at least slightly familiar I could latch onto in this brand new, unfamiliar world you created. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it, it's kind of a... There's not much hand-holding in the burn ships. Um, it, it, it throws you in and it asks, I think it does ask the reader to kind of stick at it for a little bit. And then because and then, the, the books I've loved the most um, are ones that have required me to stick at it a bit. And then there's this like moment and you think, oh, I get it. I understand it. I get all this. And suddenly you're, you're part of this, this unfamiliar world. And, that, and that, that's a really wonderful feeling for me as a reader. And I kind of hoped I could, give that to the readers of the bone ships and touch wood for, for it seems to be working. Yeah. I uh, will definitely work for me. Um, 
And I'll say in preparing for this interview, uh, I actually ended up reading all four of your books back to back. And <laughs> emotional you. trauma aside, <laughs> uh, I noticed a few clear themes uh, that kind of were in all of your books. Uh, so the first one I want to touch on is family. Yeah. You know, in the Wounded Kingdom, you have the key centering relationship between Marilla, who's this older assassin mentor and mother figure to Gurton, the main character. And then in the Bone Ships, uh, you have a similar relationship between the legendary shipwife Mies and a rather, at least at first, helpless Joran. Uh, so why the focus on family and found family for these books? I, just, I think that that's kind of, I mean, in the Wounded Kingdom, I, I'd, I'd, be, I'd recently become a parent. So, so that, that, was, that was it in my mind when I was writing a sort of parent and child relationship and, and me and my little boy. And I didn't want to, to do it uh, a male mental figure because that, that's, that's, that's what people generally do. And I thought, well, you can easily twist this just by making it, making her female. And I wanted a, a female character in it um, that played a big part. And, and I think also that she, she's like a, a lion. She's like an avatar of motherhood in that no matter how much he messes up, she is there for him and she will protect him. And, and I found that really interesting. And and I'm not sure if, I mean, it probably is family, but I think in my head, a lot of what I write about is friendship as well. Like, like Gurton does make this little family around him with, with with the people he meets. I'm trying not to mention one of the people he meets because if, if you haven't read it, it, it kind of spoils the second book. Um, but he does create this little family around him. But I, I always think of it as friendship. And then you do get a very similar um, male-female relationship in, in the bone ships. And, and someone someone asked in a kind of slightly leery way, Are you, is that what you're into then, strong women and, and weaker men? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, 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 it really isn't. Um, it, I, I wanted, it, it's kind of a very, very na- naval book adventure thing to have a, somebody come aboard who doesn't understand the way things work uh, and have a, a good captain teach them how things work. That's quite a, a, a trope. You might hear that word of naval, naval fiction and, and a lot of fiction. You know, you have, have the, the person learning and the person who knows it because that allows you as, as a writer to show the, the reader how this world works as, as well. So it's, it's useful. Um, and because it was a matriarchy, in this world, it, her position uh, made sense that she would be female because you're you're more likely to get ahead in that society if you are female. Um, although the black ships, which Joe runs on, ha- have a, a slightly larger amount of men on them because while you're more likely to get ahead, um, you're more likely to be condemned if you're male because life isn't as fair for you. Um, so it kind of it fitted the logic of the world. Uh, and but it, the the mentor student relationship is clearly one that I like. But the whole male female thing is it, it is kind of more incidental than than a deliberate thing. It's just the logic of the world dictated that. And I could have made her female and, and him male, but again, it it kind of takes the logic of a of a matriarchy and then. Um, makes it pointless for the story if, if you kind of put a woman in a subservient position to to a man in in that way. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it makes sense. It's much more thematically consistent uh, with what you were going for. And it's kind of interesting that you can have between your series two key like female characters in a strong position like that and have someone think that it's just way too much or out of the ordinary. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I don't think people who have been in touch with me have, have thought that. They've just kind of thought, do, do you have, have a bit of an obsession, RJ? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't really. It just, just, it just seems to work. And I think I, I kind of, I'm already playing with what I want to do next and that won't have that in. It'll be something different because I've done it twice now. So that I, I think it's time to step away. And the, the other reason I think... I'd, I think you get this female and male relationship um, in my books is there's a writer called CJ Cherry um, who's magnificent and she wrote a book called The Chronicles of Morgane um, which, which are about a barbarian character called Vanya and, he, and he's male and this witch to his way of thinking called Morgane turns up in his society and and she uses him to help her complete this mission she has. But she she's not a witch. She's from a um, much more sophisticated society, and she's traveling worlds, doing a thing. Um, and that book blew my mind when I read it, because it, it presents as fantasy and then does something completely different with it. Um, and that relationship is very similar in that Vanya is, though he's a barbarian, he's very capable in his society she's something different and, and, and above him. And I think that, that book, I, I must have read it when I was maybe 16, 17, whenever I read it, it had a massive effect on me. And I think to some degree I'm, I'm recreating that in books that I write in a kind of homage so that I get to say to people like you, go and read The Chronicles of Morgan. It's it's amazing. I remember it as amazing. And, and CJ Cherry's stuff's often very good. She's worth checking out. She's a really good writer. I've been meaning to read her for a while. I mostly hear about her Foreigner series, but this sounds yeah, fascinating as well. It is. It's brilliant. It's the Chronicles of Morgan. It's, it's again. It's a book that that asks you to invest in it. It's not. It's not immediately easy to read, but but if you carry on with it, what what you get back is just astounding. Just properly and say, whoa! I didn't expect any of this. This is massive. So yeah, definitely worth reading. Yeah, that sounds great. And for me, at least, the steeper the learning curve, the deeper the immersion once I finally get past that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I find with books. I really, I really like that. Books that make me work a bit uh, are worth the work, I think. Right. So another theme that uh, I've noticed in both of your series so far is disability. So in the Wounded Kingdom, Gurton has his club foot, and uh, in the Bone Ships, physical defects seem to be pretty common in the population. Uh, it's kind of baked into their society and it's almost treated as normal, um, which I think is the first time that I've seen that in a fantasy series before. Yeah, yes. Um, I have an interest in disability because I'm quite poorly myself. Um, I've, I have Crohn's disease and I was very, very poorly with that quite a long time ago now. Um, I'm, and now I'm on lots of drugs and they're really good drugs. So um, nobody needs to feel sorry for me because um, it's brilliant. Uh, every account has a silver lining um, but as part of Crohn's disease um, it attacks your joints and and there have been periods of my life when I've not really been able to walk because it's just been too painful and Gurton came out of that uh, he, he, a lot of the things that Gurton does especially the, the techniques where he's breathing um, before he fights to get control of himself and overcome his fear um, that's, that's kind of pain management techniques that, that I learned to to get over stuff um 
so it was big in my mind when I was writing it, and that's when we got that. And also, when when you go through something like that, you you gain more of an awareness. You kind of go from knowing disabled people to to appreciating more how hard it it can be. And and there was a definite idea with the Wounded Kingdom that I, I wanted to present a truth of disability, which is that you just get on with your life. Um, you the the things that are hard become normal for you um but there are still things that are hard um and maybe sometimes you need a bit of help um so there was that and then with the bone ships i i wanted to do a slightly different thing i wanted to kind of look at the the way people treat disability so you have this this very obvious two-tier society where if if you're wrong to their way of thinking you're a lower class person and and if you're right, if if your your body is whole and perfect, and um, importantly in their society, if your mother survives giving birth, you, you become a higher class person. And it kind of felt like an easy way of getting people to sort of look at the way you, you look at somebody who's a bit different to you, uh, and do you do you treat them differently? So so that that was the reason, and it's always something in my head, and um. Joron himself is born whole, but his his mother died giving birth, which makes him less of a person in the eyes of everybody else. And then, and part of the the story of the bone ships is about somebody being forced to look at their society and see that what they consider normal maybe is not fair or right in in any way. And there is a reason why there is so much disability in that society, but I'm not going to tell you or anybody. (laughs) (laughs) No spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers. Uh, You you might not even find out in the books. I think by the time you get to the third one, there's something that will give you a a good idea of of what's going on. But um, I think somebody has read the first one and they, in a review I read, uh, and I think they have quite a good idea that they were very careful about what they said. Um, so it'd be interesting how many people are picking up on, on the stuff that's going on in the background. Um, but I, I, I was shocked that somebody picked up in the first book because I didn't think there was enough in there for them to, to understand it. Well, that means you're doing your job, right? You're laying the groundwork for them. Yeah, yeah. And, and then later on, we'll, we'll find out find out more it, it's a ridiculous idea i had earlier on and, and i've carried it through there's probably only there's about three people that know what it is so let's not talk about that anymore because i talk too much and, and i'm liable to say well let's just share the secret with you and, and all the hundreds and hundreds of people that listen to your podcast <laughs> <laughs> well if if you ever do accidentally share too much just let me know and i'll edit it out Brilliant. It, it's, I'm being very good. I've got a little notepad, so when, when I'm thinking of things I shouldn't say, I'm writing them down. <laughs> I'm putting a line through them. So, so I'm mentally just going, no, RJ, don't do that. Don't do it. Well, another thing uh, you touch on in uh, both of your series is kind of a metaphor for how your world works and then our environment. I know in the Wounded Kingdom, magic literally destroys the land around people. Uh, when someone uses magic, they're draining the life from the land. And that, to me, kind of felt like uh, maybe a metaphor for oil or harvesting natural resources uh, from the earth. Yeah, yeah, it is absolutely a, a metaphor for oil. And, and I saw a, um, 
there's a place if you if you Google the North Yorkshire Moors, there's a place called the Hole, Hole of Hawkham, um, which is one of the places in my head that gave birth to the Wounded Kingdom. And and I was travelling over the North Yorkshire Moors. Maybe it was another moor. We have quite a few moors in England, and they're quite similar when when you they're like big flat flat places with not much going on but heather. Um, and I saw a strip mine. And it was just like this big scar on the earth and it, and it stuck in my head. And that was, and it was all sand underneath the moor, which is why the sour rings are yellow in the Wounded Kingdom. Uh, and also the magic when he uses it is is black. So it was kind of this thought of, of oil and, and stealing power from the earth was in there. But I, I didn't want to sort of hammer it into people. I thought people will pick that up or, or, or they won't. And that, that, that's, I don't think you need to know that to enjoy the story, um, but it, it is in my head. And then when we get to the burn ships, again, we, they, they, have, they, they have ruined their society through, through greed. I'm not a big fan of greedy people. They tend to, they tend to get it in my books. But yeah, they, they've, they, they had a resource that was amazing and they, they have mismanaged it so much that there's none of it left anymore. And that, that's, that's one of the set up points for the book. Right. And uh, another thing, so I'm just kind of wondering, moving on from the environment topic, you said before that if there was one main goal for the Wounded Kingdom, it's about forgiveness and doing the right thing, even though it may cost you personally. Uh, Be good to people uh, because that's its own reward. And is there a similar kind of main goal or uh, boiling down the essence of the bone ships that you can think of? Yeah, I think I think. Forgiveness uh, and and doing the right thing it is it, a constant thing to me because I think it, I think it's important. I, I, I talked to someone about the idea of the hero, um, and I, I kind of get sort of pushed into grim dark, and I don't think, although what I write is quite dark and quite gritty, I don't. I think one of the the signifiers of Grimdark is to have have a, a central character who is maybe not heroic, who is very grey, and more about getting through it themselves and getting through the situation where the the heroic figure, I'm doing little air quotes, but you can't see that because, because I'm in England. Yeah. <laughs> um, for, for me, the signifier of the heroic figure is when, when it comes to a, a choice point and you can either take the easier option which, which will keep you safe or, or you can take the harder option which, which might not keep you safe um but will help a lot more people that someone who is heroic will take that harder option uh, and that that is what Gurton does in the wounded kingdom not always willingly and not always for the right reasons and he makes a lot of mistakes sometimes he he thinks he's doing that and he's not he's doing entirely the wrong thing because he's he doesn't think through he's he's I always think of him as a really bad detective, um, and I, I love him. He's one of my favorite characters. But he—he is—he's a really bad at what he does. He just blunders about and hopes everything goes okay. But he—he he will, he will always choose the right thing, even though that—that that can lead to great personal pain. Um, and then in the bone ships, we have the same thing. I mean, it's a ship of criminals, uh, and they are given a second chance through this this woman that that comes along, and she has a, a very definite mission of her own that she wants to accomplish that she thinks is worthwhile and good and and can she get them to go along with it will will it work and that that's kind of the, the central thing of it this 
these people who are judged unworthy. Uh, there's a character who, who murdered his wife in it, and I kind of worried about that, but cause it, it, but that's the worst thing that can possibly happen in a society because women are powerful and, and he's he's quite important. I have plans for him for, for what to do and how that will play out. And, and, and I generally think that to forgive is, is an important lesson. And, and I, I mean, we do a, in a book, you do an exaggerated version, like, like the, there is a character in the wounded kingdom who, if you've read it, you'll know who I'm talking about, who turns everything around. But so the reality of it is he, he has done some absolutely terrible things. Uh, and maybe actually he should have been in prison. But in a book, you, you exaggerate um, reality and, and you, you can do that. You, you can to put forward a message in a, in a more, uh, more stark way, if that makes sense. I'm not saying we should let people murder people and just go, well, that was naughty, <laughs> but, but I'm forgiving you because that, that's not the case. But but um, I am saying the overall message is, is one of don't, don't hold on to hatred and, and, and try and get over it. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, and I, I think that's a powerful message, like you said, that's present in both of your series yeah. so far. I, I, I like people. I, I, I like people. My experience of people is that generally if – if you give people the chance, they will do the right thing. Not not everybody will. You're, you're always going to meet people who who won't. But but if you judge everybody by them, then you're letting them dictate who you are. And I'm I'm not prepared to do that. I'm, I'm going to presume everyone's nice until they prove me wrong. Some people really have, but but it, that's life. You just get on with it. Well. Taking a step back, I guess, from digging into the meat of the actual content of your stories. Uh, talking about the writing side of things. Uh, so I know you're a bit infamous or legendary, however you want to uh, consider it, for writing at least Age of Assassins in around six weeks. And you've never really seemed to have a huge issue with writer's block. Uh, is that still true with the bone chips? Yes. I'm not writing this quickly. Um, the, the thing with Age of Assassins it, is it sounds brilliant, but I must stress there was a course of steroids involved. Um, so, so I did have a lot more energy than I usually have. Um, and I just come out of, of not – the only time I ever seem to get stuck is when things go on submission, which if you're not familiar with the process, um, your book goes to your agent and your agent reads and says, right, it's good enough now to go to the publishers and the publishers. And they read it and decide if they want to buy it, and that process can take months um, and generally during that process, I can't do anything. I can't write anything new because I don't really, my mind just goes, ah. So I'd just come out of that with a big science fiction book um, and it didn't sell. Uh, and my agent at the time was gutted, but I, I was just like, no, I can write again now. And, and I got across steroids and had this idea and I went bang and I did it. And and what you read is quite similar to, to what I wrote. There are some some big changes in it. Like the, the book ended um, when you found out who the assassin hirer, because it's not a murderer in that book, um, was where, where the book actually goes on a bit longer now. And, and there are, there are, there is kind of a, a story running through it of, of some people Gurton doesn't get on with that, that can be rounded up at the end. And that wasn't in the original version. It was a much 
pure a murder mystery, the first version of it. Um, and then, because I'd written it so quickly, Orbit said, we'd like to release a book every six months. Do you think you can write the next one in three months each? Uh, and I foolishly said yes. Um, <laughs> and, and I did, because um, Girton's voice is a very easy voice for me to write. Um, so I wrote those quite quickly, um, and that was that was okay. But when we came to the the bone ships, it it's a more complicated voice um, narratively. It, it's it's more. I'm really wary of using this phrase, but my editor uses it. It's a more literate voice. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I just think it's the voice the book needed. Um, but it's harder to write. So when I was writing Age of Assassins, I, I write Monday to Friday, and I'd usually write about 2,000 words a day. And then when when I've been writing The Bone Ships, it tends to be about 1,000 words a day, which, which sounds like a lot, but they're rubbish. I have to make them good. Um, and, and I don't have anything else to do. That's quite an important thing to stress. I, I, I write full time. Um, and there are a lot of writers that write a lot more than I do. I'm just quite lucky that Touchwood, up till now, what I write tends to be quite accurate for the final version. But I'm, I'm waiting for edits on the second Bonship book, and I keep saying that, and I'm just waiting for it to come and bite me. I'm sure Jenny's going to come back and go, right, we have to change all of this, RJ. <laughs> um, um, the first Bonships, I think, I think, took six months to write. The second one took 11 months to write. It was much harder. Harder for me, partly because in the middle, I kind of had the realisation that I, I'd walked away from something people had really liked and done something completely different. And I just thought, oh, my God, what have I done? What have I done? Um, and, and you have a kind of a crisis of confidence. And that's not a that, – that's a, a kind of a very normal thing for a writer. It's just part of the job. So that slowed me down a bit. And then I'm on with the third one now, and I'm, I'm about 40,000 words in it, into it, and I seem to be doing about 1,000 words a day. But – I. Writer's block is a – everything to do with writing is very personal to, to the writer. And you can never say um, – or, or be very wary of anyone that tells you they know how you should write because they don't. Only you know how you should write. Um, but writer's block for me is never so much about not having something to say. It's about worrying how to do it. Um, or worrying that you won't be good enough, or worrying that, that what, what you write won't interest people. Um, and I get over this by telling my, giving myself permission to be rubbish. I just I just tell myself that whatever I write, it can be it's going to be rubbish. It is going to be absolutely terrible, and that's okay because because I can fix it later on. It's much easier to fix stuff that you've got on the page than it is to write perfect from scratch. Um, and I think if I was trying to write like beautiful sentences that were perfect as I sat there I'd get nothing done but because I I'm just like put any old nonsense down RJ as long as it's down it it's not really that difficult and the, the whole writing is quite a joyous process for me the hardest bit is getting myself to sit down and start and I think that's even if you love a thing there's still a thing in your head going yeah but you could do these other things. You, you you could go and like I've just bought Spider Man for the PlayStation Four, which was a really bad idea, because <laughs> that that's there now, and I could write Bone Ships Three, but but maybe I need to finish a level on Spider Man first. I hope my editor doesn't listen to this, but but yeah, that's how I get past 
writer's block is I just presume what I do is going to be very bad. And then there's no pressure on me because because if it's not very bad, I've won. And if it is very bad, I've just done what I expected anyway. So kind of not lost either way. And I am I'm quite a easygoing person. I'm not, not that uptight. I think I think something about writer's block can be about winding your own expectations of yourself up so tight that, that you, you can't move and, and you, you need to move away from that. But not for everybody. I stress because it's different for everybody. Or somebody will, I know will probably shout at me and say, you've got that wrong. It's right for me. Well, yeah, and I think uh, you hit on something there where uh, any type of writing advice is not going to work for everyone. Everyone needs to do their own thing. Uh, but I think a lot of maybe the insecurities or worries and stresses that writers have might be at least similar. Uh, so I think it's interesting that you touch on that. And, and it's it, it's um if there are people listening that 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 are starting out on their writing, um, that that feeling that that you have when you're reading your writing back and thinking I, I don't know if this is good or not, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to be good enough. Um, that that is just normal. I, I'm on my sixth going hopefully going to be published book, uh, and I'm still reading it back thinking yeah, but it's it's actually terrible, uh, and I don't actually know what I'm doing. If I'm honest, and that's, I'm always kind of in awe when you see these people who have, um, my my friend Anna Stevens who who wrote Godblind trilogy, she does it, and, and Melissa Caruso who who wrote the Tethered Mage, um, she does it where they have like spreadsheets and they have post-it notes and they have their character arcs planned out and and they they know what they have to overcome from the start, and I look at that and think, oh my god, that's amazing. Because it, it, I just couldn't. I don't. I couldn't. If you told me how, how do you plan this character's character arc, I'll just look at you blankly. And just go. <laughs> I write it. I hope it's okay. So yeah, there there are vast amounts of difference, and, and do what works for you, and that is the only way of doing it, really. Right, and uh, I've also seen you've mentioned before that after spending so much time writing and struggling with the editing process. Uh, uh, it's difficult sometimes for you to read fantasy now. And I'm wondering because uh, this was probably most apparent to me in the Wounded Kingdom series where it felt like I was reading mystery novels uh, with kind of a flavor of fantasy. Um, and maybe Bone Chips is similar where it's a naval novel with a flavor of fantasy. Um, but Yeah, I, th- I think writing fantasy has stolen fantasy from me to some degree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's so but, um, sad. It, it isn't. It isn't because I don't. I do think to to a degree, genre is is just the clothes stories wear, um, rather than being its own specific thing. It's much more useful as a marketing tool than it is for for anything else. And you get elements of fantasy in in other books. Like um, there's a crime writer I love called James Lee Burke who who writes very serious, very literary crime, and then it's beautiful, but also has a supernatural element in it. Which is quite fantastical, uh, but when I, when I write when I read actual fantasy, uh, the bit of my head that's going, what would I do with this idea, just won't turn off. Uh, and and it's not it it's not criticism. I'm not judging it in any way. I'm just completely unable to relax because my my the plotting bit of my mind that because of the way I write, I think because because I, I write on the fly and I'm. I finish a sentence, then there are all the possibilities of that sentence. 
for me as I write that as I read it, my mind's just doing the same thing. So I can never relax or enjoy things. And it's so I read other genres. I read a lot of nonfiction and I read a lot of crime and I read science fiction and, and, and literature in, in, um, in speech marks. Um, but yeah, fantasy is really difficult. Now, and, and it's not just me. I've, I've spoken to quite a few fantasy writers who have this this thing where reading the genre that you write get, gets difficult. I'm not naming names because may, maybe they're not as stupid as I am that they say it to people. But but, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it is. It's it's a weird thing that that something I really enjoyed has been stolen from me. But but such is life, uh, and and maybe maybe that that helps give me my voice that I'm not kind of maybe there's part of my, my head that's worried that if I start reading current fantasy, I'll want, I'll think, Oh, well, this used to be what's popular. Cause like mercenaries seem to be a big thing at the moment. I wonder if I started reading mercenary books, would I suddenly think, Oh, I'll try a mercenary book. Um, and the little bit of me that, that has always been sat there going, I'm not, I'm not joining your club. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a nightmare. Um, <laughs> um, it is probably also telling me, no, 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 don't read these. There's, there's all these little sort of quirks in the back of my head that conspire to to send me at the moment towards actually hardboiled historical fiction is is a real love of mine, and I think the the Wounded Kingdom isn't actually that far from historical fiction, but um, because it, it's fantasy. You don't have to do as much research as well, which is good because I'm very lazy. <laughs> um, well, I've seen you say before that you really enjoy uh, making appearances at conventions and cons. Um, do you have uh, any particularly funny or entertaining convention stories you could share? Oh, I, I wish I did. I tend to forget things as soon as they've happened. Um <laughs> <laughs> the the, the funniest here. thing that's happened to me is um in my debut year i think i got on, on through this wasn't this isn't actually convention related um it's just general right related i, I got on three best female debut lists um we, we <laughs> and i had to contact the people <laughs> and, and and say i shouldn't be on that list and they blessed them they were lovely they were going no no it's a really good book i said yeah that's not why i shouldn't be on that list um <laughs> because <laughs> people see the, see the long hair and um, I must stress that if, if you are a person who always thought I am a girl I am not insulted by that, it's happened all, all my life and um, when I was younger and much more outrageous I used to use it to get free drinks in bars but um, <laughs> but, but, but yeah the, the, there's that but um, mostly conventions for, for me are, are just kind of fun because you get to to meet up with you, you become friends and all these other writers. When I, when I say I don't, I don't read fantasy. I don't, I don't read fantasy books. But what I do tend to do is, is, is I'll flick into the books of people that I know and read a bit of them, just just so I have an idea of, of their their voice. Because I kind of came up um, in, in a year with with Nick Eames and Anna Stevens and Anna Smith Sparks and Ed McDonald. Um, who are the other writers that came up in that year? Uh, mine just gone blank. I've missed someone out that I really like in the shower. Um, but I, and and I didn't. I I, skip, I I read bits of their books and I was amazed by the 
the, their voices and, and the way they write and, and I know it is good. I, I just know that I can't can't get my head won't let me read them all. I've come completely off the point, haven't I? Um but but yeah, um yes, convention stories. I don't know, most of my convention stories um involve me getting lost, to be honest with you. That that's generally uh, and my, my um my press officer, Nazia, um, shouting at me. That, that's basically all my conventions, is her telling me I'm in the wrong place and pointing, going over there, RJ, um, and then making me buy sweets because she's really mean. But, but that's, what she does. that's what she does to all her authors. She's, she's, no one at all bit misbehaves. We're too scared of Nazia. Um, yeah, mostly it involves me just getting lost on the way or getting on the wrong train or turning up in the wrong town. All these things have happened more, more than once. <laughs> Oops. And I think you said before, uh, your press officer, Nausea, she's put you on a couple panels because she thought it would be funny? Yes. Yeah, she has. She, she, um, uh, dude, I, I'm, you can probably pick up that I'm not the most organized person in the world. And I'm not, a, um, I, I'm kind of a, a force for, chaos small chaos not not massive chaos but I, i'm not i tend to just ramble off and go wherever i want so um Nancy thought it'd be really funny to make me the moderator of a panel which is i was just like what are you thinking Nancy? it will be funny and it was funny um we had we had a brilliant time it was a i think was it comic con it might have been one of the big comic cons um um but and ben aronovich was on 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 the panel and, and some other people who are now going to be crossing me because their names have gone out of my head. I only I remember Ben because I was sat next to him. Um, and I think they, they turned up thinking the panel would be about what it said it was about. And, and it just wasn't, we just went, it, it ended up about nothing, but there was a lot of laughter. <laughs> and, and I think in, in its own way, it succeeded while actually never broaching the subject we were meant to talk about. Which is a win in in my book. Yeah, I mean, in the few conventions I've been to, those are my favorite panels. So I think you did something right. Yeah, I, I tell you, the, my favorite panel that, that I've ever done so far was the World Fantasy Convention. I did the Talking Animals panel, and that was wonderful. Um, there was a really good mixture of people on it. That some were some were serious, some knew their subject. Um, some were very clever and then there was me um to talk nonsense uh, and it, it just had, had a really lovely feel to it and i said if you ever want somebody to talk about talking animals i'm here for that that is that is my thing because that is another thing in my books that you'll you'll find although the, the animal in the wounded kingdom doesn't talk but he kind of does in a silent way <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you mentioned that uh, in part of the group of writers, I guess, that were published around the same time as you, uh, Nicholas Eames, um, and you've said before that he's one of the few writers that you'd allow to write in one of your worlds um, because you just like his humor. Uh, so I'm curious, to just kind of a thought exercise, uh, what do you think would happen if the two of you were given the chance to write in each other's worlds or given the chance to write each other's next book? How would that go down? I think I think there'd be a lot of very disappointed Nicholas Eames readers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think there would. Um, 
The, the reason I, I, I would choose Nick to write in my world is he is so different to what I do. Uh, and that that's what would interest me, to see what some, somebody who, who writes from a completely different way um, would do, do in that world. Um, but, I mean, if, if, I, if I wrote, wrote in his world, he definitely would get all the things that um, Nicholasy readers love because that, that that wouldn't be my thing. You might get some eighties metal though because I can I can do eighties metal, but um, all the other stuff like there's a lot of D and D references in, in Nick's stuff, which I don't know about Dungeons and Dragons because I was playing in bands when, when I probably should have been playing Dungeons and Dragons, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, so that'd be out the window for a start. We, we we might get that, and it would be quite gloomy, you know. Bloody Rose, she probably wouldn't make it out the first chapter. I, I, I doubt, uh, and uh, none of them would. I, I think because the first thing you do is you think, right, let, let's have a clean slate. Let's kill all Nick's characters. Um, he'd love that. I'm sure he'd be like, yes, thanks for that, RJ. Um, but the thing is, you you never know what you would do with the thing until you you're doing it if that makes sense right yeah no, that I'd, makes I'd sense. love to read mm, i would love to read a, a nick emer's version of, of um uh, i think it'd make me so cross it's like you can't do that Ames. what are you doing it's he's being humorous he's not he's sulky stop it Ames. um yeah but it, it's it's i think the, the, the joy com- of somebody else doing something with your stuff comes from them breaking it and, and that, that's what I, I would like, how absolutely appalled I would be to my beautiful, beautiful inventions. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of your beautiful inventions, uh, you mentioned before that you had a sci-fi novel that didn't quite sell. Um, and if I'm correct, is that A Darkness Against the Stars? Yes. Yeah, it is. It was called A Darkness Against the Stars. And... Hopefully at, at some point in the future, because um, we gathered that I might I might be wrong, because when, when your agent says things don't sell to some degree, I think they kind of cushion the blow a bit. But um, <laughs> one of the reasons it, it didn't sell was they kind of thought it was probably too big and weird and complex for a new voice um, and, and probably some work needed done on it. But I could probably do that work now. Um, and my, my agent, Ed, Ed Wilson, who is a wonderful, funny man with terrible taste in trousers, um, thinks that possibly someone might pick it up now. So we might we might go back with that book and see if anyone wants to put it out. Because I, I love it. I, I think it's a really interesting book and it has sort of similar themes of forgiveness. And and, and it, it's, um, it's written from the point of view of a, a pacifist. Um, so it's a pacifist military space opera, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so, I mean, you've got yeah. me interested. Yeah, there is a lot of violence in it still, but but um, the main characters trying not to be involved in it. And but I, I I like that book. I've not read it for about three years, so I'm saying I like it. I like my idea of it. I might go back to it and think actually no, I, I hate this book now. But I, I don't think so. I think this and, and there is kind of a mystery element to it as well so so hopefully at some point we we'll, we will see that come out I, I would like it to i think it, i think there's worthy stuff in it it's not um, a trunk novel 
you know, you know that that phrase where yeah, writers have trunk novels which they write and finish and think well actually I've made a right mess of that that's that's just gonna that's a learning experience and then it's not it's not that I think it's a decent book I think it just wasn't it's time so fingers crossed yeah and uh, I guess even if you don't go back to that book I any chance have you thought about writing in a sci-fi world I know you like bouncing around and switching it up to do something new I, I'd love to write some science fiction because I, I really, I really like it, and I think that's some um, stunning. I, I don't know if you've read Adrian Tchaikovsky's *Children of Ruin* and *Children of Time*. I haven't yet, but I do own the books, so they've been staring at me from my bookshelf. Oh, they're, they're astounding books. They're proper. I mean, Ch- *Children of Time* won, won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, uh, and is is great, and then. Children of Ruin, uh, my, my wife sent me away when I was reading that because I just kept stopping and going, Adrian is a genius. He is an actual genius. And after a bit, she went, okay, I've got the message. I know he's a genius. Go and read it in the bedroom. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it, it, they're, they're, they're brilliant books. So kind of, and I'm a bit scared. What if I get sci-fi stolen from me as well? Because if I ever lose fantasy, and then I lose sci-fi, and then what if I decide to write a crime book? And then I'm just going to be sat there with no books, and I'll, or I'll be reading romance, which I'm not against, because um, I've got all of the Georgia Hayes to get to, because my, my wife swears they're brilliant. So they are, they're on my list. But um, yeah, but one day I'm, I'm going to do a science fiction book. Shh. <laughs> but it's a secret. It's our secret. There you go. No one else will hear it. Mm. no one else will ever know yeah um yeah and i i think i know you've talked about this a little bit but you brought it up again uh about genres being stolen from you so that is something that's interesting to me because i feel like so much of writing is not about the genre so do you ever worry that you might pick up a historical fiction or something or a crime novel or something totally different and be like well I'm familiar. This sounds a lot like the type of character arc or something that I would write. Uh, or is it just the, the clothes of the genre that really do that for you? I, I think it's the, the clothes of the genre that, that put my head into writing mode. I, I think it's recognizing the sort of the, the fantastic world and my conscious brain going, looking at the cover and thinking, oh, this is the sort of sort of thing that you do even though it's going to be i know it's not going to be the sort of thing i do it's going to be vastly different to what i do because every author is is different and unique and has their own thing but um the 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 brain is amazing but also incredibly stupid in many ways Uh, and there there is the old fantasy book that i have read like pete mclean's priest of bones um i read that uh, and i think that worked for me because it feels very close to reading historical there's very little magic in it it feels like historical fiction so i think my brain was oh oh yeah we we're okay with this we're not constantly second guessing it but sort of the more fantastical things get the the harder it gets for me to relax into the book if that that makes sense right i i get that it flips that switch in your head yeah it's it's entirely my stupid problem and not the authors of fancy books who, who I know are all great and write amazing things. And, and sorry, sorry, fellow authors, feel free to slap me. Actually don't because, um, if Anna Stevens is listening, she, she might, and she's quite hard. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> so that hurts. Oh no, no, don't, don't just, just give me a nasty look. 
you, you can do that. Cool. So totally switching topics, but I was curious uh, as sort of one of our last questions. You said before that you're a fully qualified airline pilot. Is that true? Have you ever heard the phrase, all authors are liars? <laughs> that, that's why I was wondering. I was like, there's probably a great story behind that, but it might not be true. No, it's, it's entirely not true. Um, I, I think some, somebody asked me and I, I just said it thinking that they'd pick up it was a joke uh, and, <laughs> and they, they be, believe me so obviously I, i'm more convincing than, than i think um I, I am a qualified electronics engineer which which often surprises people in as much as that i qualified as an electronics engineer when i left school that i went to college and i did that but um th this is me this this is you know you have there are things that happen and they kind of really explain your personality um I could do all the exams for an electronics engineer and I could understand all the circuit boards, but I cannot get the back off a television. It just bemused by that. I'd say, like, what, what are all these screws for? I don't understand it. It's too confusing. And I'm, I'm not allowed to put up shelves in our house because they, they, they never go up straight. And it drives my wife mental. She's the practical one. She's just like, I'm going to put the shelves up. You, you go and I can do measuring. That, that's okay. I'm good at that. But actual practical stuff i'm a, I'm a nightmare just not not the way my brain works at all my, my brain's quite sort of scattered. Yeah, well i i feel like i'm kind of right there with you uh which is worrying because i am actually an engineer so i shouldn't be like that <laughs> Theoret are you a theoretical engineer or are you a hands-on engineer uh it, it's more theoretical than hands-on so that's probably <laughs> for the best yeah 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 that that, that is good yeah because I, I just this is all just bolts and they're all different sizes it just seems a lot of effort doesn't it just confusing <laughs> well uh thank you so much rj this has been an absolute pleasure uh thank you for taking the time to uh have this chat with us i've loved it travis thank you ever so much for having me on maybe, maybe we can do it again at the end of the bone ships and then i can talk talk more about things that are that are hidden in that book that are going to come up later on absolutely you're welcome back anytime rj brilliant have a really good week travis that's it for this week. You can find RJ Barker on Twitter as at deadbutdreaming. That's dead without the A, but, and dreaming without any vowels. I'm sure there's a story behind that. He's on Facebook as that RJ Barker, and his website is rjbarker.com. If you thought RJ's Assassin series sounded intriguing, you can check out the first book in the Wounded Kingdom trilogy, Age of Assassins. The series is complete and a fantastic read. And if you think giant chips made from dead dragons doesn't sound interesting, who hurt you? Links to RJ's books and social media are in the show notes, and there's even a link to hear RJ brag about his extensive knowledge of ships in the blog post. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyn.com or on Twitter and Instagram at thefantasyn. We have a ton of great episodes coming up for you. If you enjoyed this interview, we'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss our future episodes. That's all for this week. See you next time.